Welcome to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a heart for God and a deep love for people. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. Let's actually just get into the passage this morning and dive right in. We're going to read verses 1 through 8, and then we're also going to skip down and read the last part of it. And then we'll also be looking at the rest of it uh, in whole together. But looking in verse number 1, reading verses 1 through 8, it says, When or what then will we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, has found? If Abraham was justified by works, then he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. Now the one who works, or now to the one who works, pay is not credited as a gift, but as something owed. And all of the employees in here say that a very hearty amen to that, right? We earn what we get, right? Some of you probably think I earn a little more than I actually do get. But we get what we are owed. But to the one who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited for righteousness. Likewise, David also speaks of the ungodly. His faith is credited for righteousness because he speaks of the blessing of the person who, to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless acts are forgiven and whose sins are covered. We say amen to that, right? Blessed is the person that the Lord will never charge with sin. Like I said, we're going to cover the whole chapter. I want you to skip down to verse number 22 at the end of the chapter because a beautiful bookend to what we read just a second ago. Therefore... It was credited to him for righteousness. We're going to keep talking about that phrase this morning. And it's speaking of the, his faith was credited to Abraham for righteousness. Now, it was credited to him, was not written for Abraham alone, but also for us. It will be credited to us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered up for our trespasses, and he was raised for our justification. This is one of the more... I guess, thick passages that we're going to look at in the book of Romans. The book of Romans is deep, and this one is kind of, kind of deep as well. So let's pause right now and ask the Holy Spirit to guide us as we uh, travel through this, this chapter together, okay? Father, this morning, um, I thank you for the time that we've already had to worship you, Lord. I pray that you've been, um, you've been glorified, not just by our abilities as we sang, but by the heart that we worship you with. Lord, you tell us that you wish for us to, and you desire for us to worship you in spirit and in truth. And so I pray, Father, that we brought the right offering of spirit. I pray that we worshiped you according to the truth of your word, God. That every word that we sang this morning lined up completely with scripture. And Father, when we sing that you are here moving in our midst, that is not just a line, Father, that is truth. We welcome your presence, Lord God. And we ask now, Holy Spirit, that you would speak through your holy word. Let us not ask, how can I make this word fit my life? But how can I fit my life to your word? In Jesus' precious name we pray. God's church said, amen. Years ago, many of you may, uh, I know I was alive uh, at this time, and many of you may remember the story of 33 Chilean miners that were trapped for almost two months. They were trapped underground beneath the surface. They found themselves in this deep, dark pit, and they were unable to do anything about their situation. And it was on the news, and I remember just about every night on the news checking in to see how the mining situation was going. Um, And if they were ever going to be saved, they knew that they couldn't do anything on their own. So if they were ever going to be saved, they knew that help had to come from above. 
And it was a dire situation. There were engineers and architects and mining operators and people flown in from all around the world, experts in this field of mining and experts in the field of engineering to try to figure out how they could save the lives of these 33 miners. Because there was nothing that they could do below for themselves. They had exhausted everything that they possibly thought that they could do to try to get to safety. They had come to this little pocket of air, this pocket of, of, of a place where they could be, and they were safe and sound there. But they knew that without supplies, without help, they would die there. This would be their tomb. If they were to be helped, help was going to have to come from above. And so after several weeks, the miner's location was finally pinpointed. And so the rescue workers who had been flown in from all around the world, all of these experts, were able to begin to lower essential items down through this small little tube. They were able to drill this little tube that they were able to start throwing little things that they needed, such as food and water and toothpaste. Because can you imagine 33 miners and morning breath trapped in there? Uh, there for, but they needed all of these supplies delivered down to them. And if you can imagine being one of those miners, the very first time you started to hear drilling taking place, you're thinking help is coming. And you're thinking it's not much longer that we're going to be down here. And then you only find out that it's just this little tube that they can start delivering supplies to. And you, you think, okay, this is the best they can do. At least for now, it gives me a little hope that my salvation is about to come. And so the miners for weeks sat there and they waited for deliveries to come through that tube until finally after 59 days, every miner was successfully brought to the surface. Every last one of them survived. There was one miner who, when he was interviewed by the news, Mario Sepulveda, he said this, he said, we always knew that we would be rescued, which is interesting. After two months underground in total darkness, he said, we always knew that we would be rescued. We never lost our faith. Another miner said that there were not 33 people down in that pit. He said there were about 34. He said because God was with us the entire time. And what Mario Sepulveda said, he said, there were times when we thought that it would be rough for us, but when that tube was drilled and we started to get those gifts from above, those things that sustained us, it gave us hope to cling to that our ultimate salvation would eventually come. We always knew that we would be rescued. We never lost our faith. So what sustained these miners for two months trapped in total darkness and in utter despair was their faith that deliverance was coming. Now, that's a pretty obvious understanding of where we sit right today with salvation, right? This is the gospel. This is a beautiful picture of what the gospel is. The gospel and this word that we have before us is like that too. Because right now, the Bible says that because of sin and because of death and because of the brokenness of this fallen world we're living in, we're like those miners. We're trapped. And a lot of times we look around and we see the darkness around the world and we think, is there any hope? Is it ever going to get better? And then we open the word. And he begins to deliver us the truth of God's word, his precious promises that we know that we can cling to. He delivers us to the gospel that yes, we have all sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us deserved death, but because of the grace of God, if you place your faith in God and you repent of your sins, he will deliver you. And even on your darkest day, you cling to that hope that one day deliverance is coming. 
This is why Paul said in the book of Romans that we've been looking at in chapter 1 when he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. This is why he was so in love with the gospel. This is why he was so in love with Jesus. Because the gospel is like the tube that kept delivering hope to those miners. It keeps delivering us the hope and the promise that we need to sustain ourselves as believers living in a broken and a falling world. We are not of this world, but we are still living in this world. And so how do we live in this world? We don't engage with everything by a worldly mindset. We look at what is above to help us get the proper perspective on the things that are below, that we are living in right now. See, when, when, <clears throat> when Paul said in, the, uh, in, in Romans chapter 1, and what we've been seeing all the way through this, this passage and all the way through this, this series so far, is that we have seen a very dark picture, haven't we? We see what our fallenness has gotten us. Because of the book of Romans and what we see about our sin, all of us, because of our sin, are trapped in spiritual darkness and in spiritual hopelessness, that there's nothing that we can do on our own to climb out of that condition ourselves. We're all in this pit that we're drowning in, in our sin and in our sorrow and in our despair, and even our best efforts fall short of deliverance, and it's not even close. Even the best people that we know, apart from Christ, they have no hope, and it's not even close. There's no hope of climbing out. But in chapter 1, the Apostle Paul gives us this key verse that I hope by now that you have memorized. Let's, let's say it out loud together again. Let's read this together. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, catch this, the righteous shall live by faith. Just as those miners survived for two months down there, never lost hope, they lived by faith for two solid months. When you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and you trust in this gospel message, the righteous should and shall live by faith. A lot of times when we look at the gospel, when we look at salvation, we look at it as a one-stop shop. I got saved, and that is true. When we get saved, we are justified forever and freely. Once we are saved, we are always saved. But that does not mean that we only place faith in Jesus here, and then we check out of faith until we get to heaven and our faith is made sight. Once we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we are to continue to live in the faith of Jesus Christ. Our faith is what sustains us as we live in this fallen world. In the last message, we looked at the fact that faith alone in Jesus Christ alone is our ticket to salvation. But here's what Paul said. He said, don't be ashamed of the gospel. We are to cling to the good news of salvation. Not just the moment we get saved, not just the moment we get baptized, not just the moments we come to church, but we cling to the message of the good news of salvation every day, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, because it is the power of God. Because if it is not the power of God sustaining us, we're not sustaining ourselves. Because it is the righteousness of God that has been revealed to us, that he has overcome. You see, what's interesting is this cross that's behind me that's in our logo, and with the cross has become the symbol of Christianity for thousands of years. Jesus took that symbol of death and execution in the Roman Empire and turned it into a symbol of glory and victory. That's the power of God unto salvation. And he said that the righteous should live by faith, to place our faith in that powerful God and to live each day with that faith projecting us into every day. To keep our heads held high, knowing that we are children of God, have faith in a powerful God, and we have been, the, we have been beneficiaries of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
So in that last message, we saw that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone to sustain us. But now the question is, what does saving faith look like? You're supposed to put faith in Jesus, but what does that look like to put faith in Jesus Christ? Because we all put a lot of faith in a lot of things every single day, don't we? For instance, I microwaved my egg frittata this morning. I just had faith that when I pushed that button that the microwave magic would take place. And when I opened that, that oven up about a minute later, I would be touching not a frozen frittata, but a hot frittata. And it happened again. I just have faith or I just trust that it's going to work. But that's not saving faith. Saving faith goes a little bit deeper than that. And the sad thing is, sometimes I find myself struggling with my faith in Jesus Christ, but I've never struggled with my faith in the microwave. Isn't that sad? I've never struggled with my faith in that. Even though I've had to get a new microwave because it messed up. It blew. One day I put my frittata in there and it literally caught on fire and it made this weird sound and I had to wait for four months for the new microwave to come in because it was on warranty because we're in a supply shortage. I don't need to tell you. This is for my therapist. But I'm just saying, my microwave has let me down. Jesus has not. Jesus is not. So what does saving faith look like? Saving faith changes our life. When we, put our when we put our saving faith in Jesus Christ, it should change our life. Because I'm no longer committed to the way of death and sin. I'm no longer committed to my fallen state. I'm committed to a way of life that is everlasting in him. That's what saving faith looks like. And saving faith is one that guides my life as well. It's not just a temporary acknowledgement of Jesus. It's a life commitment to trust in God and Jesus Christ alone for my everything. That's what saving faith is. We talk about sometimes in church, we talk about something called easy believism, where it's just like, pray this prayer, get this, get this gift of heaven, and everything will be good. But the gospel calls us to a faith that sustains us because it's a faith that trusts in Jesus eternally. Now, that doesn't mean if I lose faith in Jesus, then I'm not saved. It means that I can keep my faith in Christ no matter what may come my way. That Christ is big enough to save and Christ is powerful enough and he is sure enough to save me from everything. That if he can save me from, from my eternal damnation, he can save me from my present darkness. And he can sustain me in that present darkness as well. So chapter 4, Paul takes this entire chapter and goes all the way back to the Old Testament to give two illustrations of what saving faith looked like. Now the difference between, between the Old Testament and the New Testament people that we're talking about now is Jesus. The Old Testament figures did not have Jesus to look back on and say, hey, Jesus is the Messiah. They were awaiting a Messiah. They didn't even know his name yet. They didn't know it was coming. But God had made them a promise that salvation would come. So the gospel not only reaches from the cross beyond, but the gospel has reached from the cross behind as well. The gospel reaches all of us, regardless of whether we stand in front of Christ or whether we stand behind Jesus Christ. And so what we have to understand this morning is we look at this illustration. This is what it's going to teach us about saving faith. The righteous shall live by faith. So what does it look like when I live by faith? Number one, I live by faith in the work of God. I must live by faith in the work of God. Now, we spend a lot of time talking about the fact that salvation is by grace through faith, and it's not of ourselves. It's the gift of God. It's not of our works, lest any man should boast. That's what Ephesians says. All right, we, we, we know this. We know it's not works. We know it's by faith. But what are we putting our faith in? I'm putting my faith in the work of God. I'm putting my faith in the work of Jesus Christ, not the work that I could do. Because I couldn't go to the cross and die for my sins. 
I couldn't do it because I'm still a sinner. I'm not a perfect sacrifice. Only Jesus Christ could go to the cross and only Jesus could die for the sins of mankind because he was that perfect spotless lamb, that perfect sacrifice. See, faith has been and always will be the path to salvation and it will always be the only path to salvation. See, this chapter answers a question that I often get a lot of times. It's one of those theological questions. How did people get saved in the Old Testament? I realize how people get saved, you know, today and how people got saved after Jesus, but how did people get saved in the Old Testament? Same way we do. They trusted in Jesus. They just didn't know it was Jesus that they were trusting. They trusted God's promise. God said, I'm going to do the work. I'm going to do the redemption. Trust me. And they trusted him, just like we did. We look at Jesus and we look at Jesus and says, God has done the work. Trust that I've done the work. It's the same way. They, they looked ahead to Jesus and we look backward to Jesus. We see two examples of that in our, in our text. Abraham was saved by faith instead of good works. Okay? So we have to trust in the work of God. Abraham trusted in the work of God. He trusted in the work of God instead of his own good works. Look at verse number two. It says, if Abraham was justified by works, then he would have something to boast about, but not before God. See, so what he's saying is, Abraham is somebody that did a lot, of the, a lot of things right. He did a whole lot of things right. We're going to talk a little bit about his life today. But the Bible says, for what does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. Now that passage right there, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness is actually a quote from all the way back in the book of Genesis chapter 15. All the way back in the very first origins of the Bible and origins of humanity, we see that a man named Abraham placed faith in God and the Bible says it was credited to him for righteousness. And because of that, Abraham is probably the most notable Jew Jewish person in history. To all of the Jews, he was the most notable person in Jewish history. All right? It's like saying that George Washington is important to the story of the United States. Or like saying that Steve Jobs is important to the story of Apple computers. All right, you just can't have what you have without that person being there. And we're going to look at Abraham's life just a little bit, but Abraham was probably the most revered man in Jewish history. Everybody who grew up a Jew sang the song, Father Abraham had many sons and many sons had Father Abraham. It's like Jewish, it's like, it's like Christian yoga. You remember those songs from, from the new, let's all stand and do that together. No, I'm just teasing. We're not going to do that. It was Abraham who God chose to be the father of the Jewish people. He called Abraham out of this place called Ur, to a land where God would birth a nation that would ultimately give us Jesus Christ that would bless not just Jew, but Gentile. He would be the savior of all humanity. So yeah, you could say that Abraham is a little bit important to the Jewish people. You could also say that Abraham is very important to us as well. Because he is. And Abraham's life, if you go back and you look in the book of Genesis, it is one long saga of faith and obedience and being put through almost like these tests, it seems like, am I going to have faith? But in our text... Paul points out that it wasn't Abraham's good works. It wasn't his obedience that we're supposed to revere Abraham for. It's his faith that led to obedience that we're supposed to revere him for. Abraham wasn't justified by his works or else Abraham could claim credit for the covenant that God made with him. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. It was his faith in what God had promised that he was going to do, the work that God was going to do that made the covenant last. It was his faith. None of the great things that Abraham did would have ever happened if he hadn't just trusted that God would make good on his promise. Abraham's mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, which is known as the hall of faith. 
And this list is a, is a list of notable people from the Old Testament that history remembers and reveres. And in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 and 9, it talks about Abraham. And it says this, By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed, and he set out for a place that he was going to receive as an inheritance. So why did he leave Ur? God said, I'm going to give you a better place. I'm going to just give you a land. And it says, he went out, even though he did not know where he was going. How many of you would pack up from, and, and Abraham was a very wealthy man in Ur. Life was good. And so one day, God, we're not told how he comes to God, or how God comes to him and says this, but God comes to him and says, leave Ur and just start walking. And I'll tell you when you get there. Now I realize we all use GPSs and we start trusting this disembodied voice in our car telling us where we need to go. But this is a different kind of thing here, right? It's leave every, everything behind. You're not coming home. You're not navigating home anymore. You're going to a new place. Just leave it all behind. Trust me. And it says he went out not knowing where he was going. And then he says, by faith, he stayed where he got as a foreigner in the land of promise living in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, co-heirs of that same promise. Abraham probably had a very nice house with a pool and a sauna and everything he needed in her. And he left and he lived the rest of his life in tents because he trusted God. He trusted the work of God. Not the work that God had proven he would do, but he trusted the promise that God had given us. And isn't that what salvation is? Has any, did any of you get to do a tour of heaven before you signed on the bottom line of faith? None of us have. We've been called to a land of promise, but we're still living in these spiritual tents. We haven't seen it yet. We don't know it. We don't trust in what we've already seen. We trust in what we've been promised. And God has promised us an eternal home. He's promised us forgiveness of sins. He's promised us presence with him. And while we never saw any example of it, we still place our faith in him. We trust the work of God. Before Abraham is even mentioned, notice in that text in Hebrews, before Abraham is even mentioned, it says, by faith. By faith, Abraham. Abraham is identified in God's hall of faith, not by who he was, but by his faith. We are identified by our faith in God as well. And I wonder sometimes, that's the way we're identified with God. Is that the way we're identified with the world around us? When they see us, do, we see a, do they see us as people of faith that just trust God? Or do they see us as something different, trusting something else? So he gives us this example of Abraham, but then he also gives us this example of David. See, Abraham was an example instead of good works, right? Instead of all the good things that he did, it was his faith that actually saved him. Now we see another guy who was saved by faith in spite of all the bad stuff he did, all right? Because there's two types of people. There's somebody who's saved instead of all the good things they do. There's some people when they get saved, you're like, I thought you'd been saved for years, man. You've been acting like a saved person forever. And then there's other people when they get saved, like, God knew that needed to happen, Right? Because, dude, you were going to split hell wide open, right? This was David. Just as, as revered as Abraham was in Jewish culture, David was highly revered because he was God's chosen person. But everybody kind of looked at David and his life and the trajectory of life and like, has to scratch their head and be like, David, you were chosen by God. He made you the king. You had all this power. You had all this everything. And you just kept doing the wrong thing every single time. Yet, for some reason, God calls David the man after his own heart. David is a man who was saved and accepted by God in spite of all of the wrong that he ever did. 
Do we need to review the things that David did wrong? All right, you remember this? All the way back at the beginning, as God has chosen David and he's beginning to get power and he's beginning to get an army and he's beginning to have this great nation that is being built around him that God used him for, he begins to go, his pride begins to set in and he says, you know what? I want to census the people and see how many people I have under my authority. And God's like, don't census the people. They're my authority. I'm just letting you have it right now. And he's like, you know what, God? I appreciate your advice. I'll take that under advisement, but I'm going to sense the people. And God's like, I told you, don't census the people. And David's like, I'm going to census the people. And so he senses the people. And God was very displeased with that. And he paid dearly for it. So at one point, you know, David's chosen man. And God said, don't do this. And David still went ahead and did it. Another, a bad work, right? And then we get on to some other bad works, right? Everybody remembers the story of Bathsheba. David's supposed to be out fighting in his army, defending that great land that God had given him. And he stays at home. He sees a woman bathing on the roof. And he says, am I king or am I not king? And he has her as his lover. And he impregnates her with a baby. The problem is, she's married to one of David's trusted generals. Remember the story? And so now David has to cover everything up. So he brings Uriah home. Only Uriah is a faithful man. He doesn't go home to his wife. Two times he doesn't go home to his wife. He stays with the king. And David's like, dude, just go home. And he won't do it. So David knows there's only one other way to cover it up. And so he orders the death of Uriah by basically by putting him on the front lines of the army. He orders a military hit on his trusted general. And then he goes and he marries Bathsheba, his widow, the widow of the trusted general, just to honor Uriah. And everybody loves David except for God's like, I see what you're doing. I not only see what's going on on the stage, I see what's going on behind the curtain. And he knows, uh, he says, I know that it's a lie and I know that it's by wickedness. And he sends Nathan the prophet to come in and say, you are the man, you are the one who has done wrong. And he repents. But yet David finds salvation. If you look in Psalm 6, if you look in Psalm 51, if you look in First and Second Samuel, you'll see how David is restored to the right relationship with God and it comes through his repentance, his humble repentance before God. And later on we see that when David dies, God calls him, the only man who ever got this notion or that ever got this title was a man after his own heart. David was not a man after God's own heart because he chased after God's will his whole life because he definitely didn't. David was a man after God's own heart because when he messed up, and he messed up royally, which is the only way a king can mess up, I guess. When he messed up, he went to God for forgiveness. He didn't try to dig his way out of the pit that he was put in. He didn't try to cover it up after God had finally exposed it to him. He just went to God and fell upon his face in humility. That's what made God, that's what made God say, David is a man after my own heart. Because he trusted the work of God, not the work of David. David knew there's nothing that I can do to make up for this. Not a thing I can do. He was doubly guilty of murder. And in Jewish society, there was no way he should have been let go out of that. But God forgave him. God showed, and as he repented, God forgave him. It says in verse number six, David speaks of the blessing of the person to whom God credits righteousness apart from works or in spite of our bad works. And in verses seven and eight, they're quotes from Psalm 32. And I want you to see this really close. In verse number seven, it says, blessed are those whose lawless acts are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Doesn't that sound like David's life? My lawless acts, they're forgiven and my sins have been covered. Blessed is the person that the Lord will never charge with sin. Abraham is a beautiful picture of the self-righteous person who could glory in his good works, 
but can only find refuge in the work that God has done. David is the picture of the person who knows he's a sinner and can only find hope in the work that Jesus has done on the cross. A one who knows they have committed lawless acts and knows that they are sins are many, but they are covered by Jesus Christ. They are never going to be charged with sin. So Paul gives us this beautiful picture of what the gospel does for us, that when you're sitting in that pit of despair and darkness, there is faith that can sustain you through all of that. What made David a man after God's own heart wasn't that he did all the right things to win God's heart, but because when his heart was broken in sin, he ran to God and found forgiveness from the heart of the Father. The other thing we have to understand about salvation uh, and the work of God is it's given by the work of God's grace, not earned through our work at all. Verses 4 and 5, I love what it says. That we cannot earn our salvation because it's a gift of grace and mercy. Now to the one who works pays not credit as a gift, but it's something that is owed. But to the one who does not work and believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited for righteousness. If I could work for my salvation, or if I could do some penance to make up for the bad that I've done, then salvation would be like a salary for a job well done. And when I stand at the gates of heaven, I stand there saying, I'm here to collect my check. But that is not salvation. I come into the courts of heaven when I draw my last breath and I stand upon the gift of the mercy of God through Jesus Christ and his shed blood upon the cross. Some of us, let's be honest, we walk around like salvation was owed to us. We know people like that, right? None of them exist at Graceway because we're all good. We know people like that. We get a little pious, we get a little thinking that, you know what, God really got something special when I, when I trusted him. This reminds us that it's a gift of grace, that there's nothing I can do to earn it. The second thing that we'll see, and we'll probably stop after point number two, and we'll pick up next week um, on point number three and four, so you can breathe a sigh of relief if you would like, okay? It was a, I, I thought I'd get through it, but I'm not, all right? The first thing is we have to have faith, living by faith in the work of God, but faith, number two, in the hopeful promise of God. We not only live by faith in the work of God, but we live by faith in the promise of God. Look at verse number nine. <clears throat> Paul is talking about salvation and the blessing that comes through faith. And he says, is this blessing only for the circumcised? And like, here we go again. We're going to talk about circumcision. Yeah, we're going to talk about it a lot. Okay. Um, he says, is it only for the circumcised or is it also for the uncircumcised? For we say faith was credited to Abraham for righteousness. There's that phrase again, faith was credited. In what way then was it credited? While he was circumcised or while he was uncircumcised? It was not while he was circumcised, but while he was uncircumcised. How many times can we say circumcised, guys? Why is Paul, and, and I know what you're thinking, why is Paul so obsessed with this? Why is he so obsessed with this one thing? Actually, he's not obsessed with it. And he's trying to get the Christians or the, the Jewish Christians that were living in Rome not to be so obsessed with it either. Because circumcision was something that God had asked Abraham to do as a sign of accepting the terms of the covenant that God made with him. And here was the covenant. Abraham, go into this land that I have promised you and I'm going to make of you a great and mighty nation that will bless everyone for all time. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a massive good deal. God chose Abraham for some awesome stuff, right? And so God says, here's what we want to do. But the Bible says he went by faith and so it was credited to him, right? 
But later on, the Bible says that Abraham did this act to serve as a sign or a seal of the covenant that God had made. God made the promise. Abraham did the circumcision, and so all of a sudden the covenant was sealed. I don't know why this was the act that was chosen. It's a question I got for God one day when I get in heaven. I have no theological explanation for that, okay? But here's what happened. People viewed circumcision in the Old Testament like we view baptism today in the New Testament. It is an outward show of an identification with God. It's an outward show of an inner faith that has already been placed in God. And that's what it was. It was the Old Testament version of baptism that I trust God and that I want to be part of the covenant. So try not to get too distracted by all the talk about circumcision, but instead notice a different word in our text. Instead of circumcision, notice this word, the word credit. Circle that word credit. And if you go through and you circle it in your text, if you circle it, you'll circle it 10 times throughout the entire chapter of chapter 4. 10 times in chapter 4, God uses, or Paul uses the word credit. Now, this is the most important word in this entire chapter. Why is it so important? Because it explains to us what God is doing in us right now before we see the full fulfillment of our faith and we stand before him in the glory of heaven. Our faith is the credit terms of forgiveness of God's present with, presence with us. Now, how many of you ever have had a credit card before? Not very many people. Y'all a bunch of Dave Ramsey people, huh? Okay. All right, we got you. All right, so our understanding of credit in today's economy, in today's modern economy, is a little bit different than the biblical understanding of credit back then. When we see that word credit, we start thinking of Visa, MasterCard, American Express. We start thinking of all of those things. Credit in our economy is borrowing against our future promise to pay back what I borrowed. I'm telling, when I use my credit card, I'm telling MasterCard, I'm going to get this. You guys are going to cover it for me, but I'm borrowing against my future earnings or my future promise that I'm going to pay you back. And because they don't trust me very much, they're going to charge me interest to enforce the fact that I will pay it back or else I'll be paying more. Everybody understands credit, right? That's what our understanding of credit is, but that is not what credit is in the Bible. That word credit comes from the Greek word logatsamai which is a banking term that just means something that is put to your account. So it, 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 biblical credit is like you, you get this card from American Express or from MasterCard or from Visa, and they say, here it is, and we've put a bunch of money on it, and you can use it for whatever you want to. You don't have to pay it back. That's not a credit card. That is a gift card. That's what biblical credit is. Biblical credit, the credit that Abraham had credited to him for righteousness was God saying, I'm giving you salvation. I'm giving you forgiveness. I'm giving you life everlasting and I'm putting it on your account. You don't ever have to pay me back because you can't. Because you can't. It's not a credit card. It is a gift. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a gift to me. And he didn't do a credit check on me because guess what? When he looks at my credit check and he looks at my sins and everything, I'm not going to measure up to get that. Every one of us failed the credit check, but God in his mercy and grace said, the gift card is available to you if you will take it by faith. This is the biblical credit. Not only the only borrowing done is our borrowing of God's righteousness that is placed upon us and covers us. And when God looks at us, he sees us as he sees his son Jesus, righteous and beloved. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. Abraham was made righteous the moment that he believed God, not the moment that he got circumcised. Because here's what happened. When, when Abraham believed God back in Ur of the Chaldees, he was like 70 years old. He didn't get circumcised until he was in his 90s. 
So if circumcision or if the idea of what we do is what leads to our salvation, then Abraham was only temporarily covered for salvation until he did the act. And this is why we fall under the idea as a Baptist church that with baptism, the ordinance of baptism, it is important, but it is not important for us to, sa to be saved. It is too important for us to tell the world of the salvation that has already taken place. When we are saved, we are saved by grace through faith. And our baptism is a picture to the rest of the world of what has already taken place on the inside. And that is what Abraham did when he was circumcised. Paul is saying here, Abraham was cov covered the moment he stepped away from home. The moment that he put that for sale sign in his house and left Ur, God had him. He was God's. He was God's man. See, God's promise of righteousness is more sure than our promise to God to get it right. If salvation was this, hey, uh, you've sinned, you've messed up, you're dead in your trespasses and sins, but I'm going to give you a chance to be saved. So what you need to do is you need to trust me and then you better walk the line for the rest of your life. And we're saying, all right, I trust you and I'm going to promise to get it right for the rest of my life. That's not salvation. Look at verse number 11. And he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteous, of the righteousness that he had by faith while still circumcised. This was to make him the father of all who believe but are not circumcised so that righteousness may be credited to them also. And he became the father of the circumcised who are not only circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith of our father Abraham while he was still uncircumcised. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would inherit the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. If those who are of the law are heirs, then faith is made empty and the promise is nullified because the law produces wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. So there's two things that are important that are happening in this passage, and it's not circumcision. Paul is pointing out the fact that Abraham was saved the moment that he believed in God, not the moment that he did the act of circumcision. And this is telling us something very important that we have to understand. No one, no one, no one is saved by works. It is all saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. No one was saved by works even before Jesus. We look back and we see all those heroes of the Old Testament, Abraham and Moses, and we think, dude, if anybody was saved, those guys were, because, I mean, they're mentioned in the Bible, and they did all kinds of amazing things. All the amazing things they did had nothing to do with their eternal salvation. It was their faith to trust God. Anyone who's ever done anything for God had the initial test of, will I trust him enough to do it? Well, I trust him enough to do it. And it's the same for us. Paul is also pointing out that the covenant that God made with Abraham to be the father of God's nation and a nation to bless the rest of the world is intact because salvation comes through faith, not through the acts of faith. See, it was important that Abraham was saved before circumcision because as Gentiles, we didn't have that within our culture. We didn't have that. And so therefore, Abraham had to be saved not through circumcision and Jewish law, but saved through the Messiah. Because now Gentiles, it was also foreshadowing the fact that Gentiles could also be saved as well. Just as Abraham was saved by faith, Gentiles are saved by faith as well. And Abraham's faith wasn't just a temporary covering until he could get around to doing the thing that God really wanted him to do. No, what God really wanted from Abraham was his faith. And he got it the moment he offered the promise. The same thing has to be said about baptism for us. Baptism is not something we do to finalize our salvation. 
Baptism is something to show the world what has already taken place by Jesus on the cross of Calvary and the resurrection from the tomb. It's a symbol. Baptism is the symbol of the deal that has already been done, not the finalization of a contract that has still got wet ink. Abraham looked forward to faith in Jesus. We look backward to faith in Jesus. Abraham's salvation came through faith in Christ. But it was a faith that looked forward in hope and expectation. Our faith is the same, but it is by looking backward to the cross in hope and expectation. We're all, Abraham and us, we're all in that mind together. And it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whether we're looking forward at the, tube, at the tube or we're looking backward at the tube, it's all the same. It's Jesus Christ who saves. Always has been. Always will be. I think this is a good stopping point today because if we go on, it'll be another 45 minutes. So that's a whole nother message that we'll get into next Sunday, okay? But let's tie this up a little bit this morning. We've talked about the fact that living by faith is a faith that just trusts in the work of God. So I want to ask you this question this morning. Are you saved? Do you know Christ as your Savior? Do you know that you know that you know that when you die, heaven is your home? And what are you basing that upon? You're basing that probably on a promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ that you trust what God's word says and that's good. But that promise is not based upon even your ability to hold on in faith. It's based upon the work of Jesus Christ. And you said, I trust Jesus and I trust Jesus alone. And there are some of you, you're in here today or you're watching right now and you feel like you've been beaten up, dragged around and especially during this time of pandemic, you're maybe asking yourself questions about your faith that you've never asked before. Here's something you find yourself questioning, you're in trouble. Is Jesus really the Savior? But if you're questioning everything but that, is the Savior. Plus nothing, minus nothing. Put your faith in Him. Put your faith and trust in Him. The work He has done. Not the work I've done. Not the work you've done. Not the work the church has done. Not all the things that you know. Put your faith and trust in Jesus and His work upon the cross. And it's also faith in the promise of God. That he has promised to keep you and to sustain you. Stop working to try to prove it. And I'm not saying don't do anything. I'm saying we work for a different reason. Because of what has been done. We work because of the work that has already been done for us. Out of gratitude. To share the blessings of the promise with people around us. The promise that God has given us is that once you are saved, you are always saved. You are mine. Salvation is available to all who believe. But living in the righteous living by faith is, means I have righteousness and I have security not in my own righteousness and the righteousness that I've preserved, but in the righteousness that God has given to me. I'm securing it by my faith in Jesus Christ. Do you have that kind of faith? Are you living by that kind of faith? And as we go into a time of prayer, a time of just reflection, we get ready to, uh, to, to close out this morning. If we would bow our head and then we close our eyes this morning. When Jesus was on the cross, he said seven things when he was on the cross. One of those things that he said was, it is finished. Tetelestai. It is finished. It meant all the work that ever needed to be done for humanity to be redeemed has been done at that moment in the cross. And when he rose from the dead, he pronounced himself as a victor over death triumphant. And he will give us that same resurrection through him. 
Are you trusting in the work of Jesus or are you trusting in something else? Are you trusting in something else? It is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Let me tell you how that played out in my life. A lot of times what I did was I would place my faith in the prayer that I prayed. That, oh yeah, I remember when I asked Jesus to save me. But I have to understand that it's not my prayer that saved me. It's the faith that I placed in Jesus. Jesus is my Savior. Have you placed your faith in Jesus? Do you know Christ as your Savior? If you don't, today is the day of salvation. The Bible says in the book of Romans that if you will call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. If you pray and you ask him to save you, he will. But here's the thing. Don't put your faith in the act of your prayer. Put your faith in the one you are praying to. Trust Jesus. Trust Jesus. That's what will make the difference. That's when you know you will be living. The righteous will be live by faith. The faith in Christ. If you don't know Christ, let today be the day that you come to him and put your faith and trust in him. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'll do your will in this time of invitation, this time of response. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening today. At Graceway, our strongest desire is to glorify Christ by telling everyone about his grace. If you have questions or are in need of spiritual help, please reach out to us by visiting www.gracewaylex.org and click on the Contact Us section. Or you can email us at gracewaylex at gmail.com. Our worship services are held each Sunday at 1030 a.m. We'd love to worship with you this week. Until next time, take care and walk in the way of grace.